Hello once again and uh, welcome to episode four of Required Reading, a film podcast. Um, thank you very much for joining us again or uh, for the first time, be that as it were. Um, I am joined here with my very good buddy Dan. Please say hello. Howdo. How are you doing? All right. How are you? Have you had a good day Don't today? Don't mind talking about that. Have you had a good day today? Fine. Busy. Busy presenting. Day. Busy day presenting. Yeah. Now, just to mix it up, you can come and do some more. Some co-presenting. Co-presenting. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, we are a film podcast with a difference. Um, we are not here to review a movie. We're here to talk about a movie capsulate the feeling of just walking out of a cinema and going oh like what did you so what did you think that, that first those first steps out of finishing watching a movie so it's a little different so the concept being that you would all have seen the film to be part of the conversation so um, we're going to talk about stuff that happened in the film and um so yeah i hope that you uh enjoyed the film and are looking forward to hearing us talk about it some more the film that we are concentrating on this evening is Alex Garland's latest, Annihilation, uh, to be found within the Netflixes. The, um, Another of the seemingly endless Netflix originals. It's every day now. Like every Bottomless day. budget these people seem to have. But this is a slightly different tangent to that in that it's a movie that is being released in cinemas in North America. Yep. And we are the only people that are that are seeing it this way, but also the Everyman Cinema, I think, was showing it the other day. Um, yes, you know, I read somewhere that people were watching it theatrically and said it should have had a theatrical release. Uh, but I don't know if it's just us in the UK. I think it was only North America that got the cinematic release yeah. and globally... Mm. Uh, yeah, it's been a Netflix-only film, which is a, a curious decision. And early, early sort of thoughts on it were that I saw a sort of American takes on it that like I can't believe that people aren't going to get to see it in the cinema. So yeah. it's quite an interesting one. We'll get round to it later. I'm quite interested to hear your thoughts on it. Um, it's my love affair with the cinema is in a really sort of strange place mm-hmm. right now, especially sort of thinking about doing this podcast and thinking about. So um, yeah. Anyway, we'll get we'll get we'll get back to that. First, I would like, um, yeah, let's concentrate on the film. What did you think of Annihilation? Personally, I actually quite liked it. Um, this is a film that really seems to have split opinion quite violently. I don't think there's many people I've spoken to since viewing it who said they thought it was okay. Some mm. people think it's catastrophic. Yeah. Um, I thought the Glowfield Paradox was catastrophic. I didn't think this was catastrophic, and I'm, and you know, obviously, I've been doing a bit of reading since and mm. trying to pick over what what people really had against it. Not strictly in the uh, spirit of the podcast. By no, the way, no, but... no, no. I mean, admittedly, I've had a few more days than I usually would owing to work commitments. But um, that's really fun, fun stuff to talk about. It is, but I, I, I felt that. Um, I can tell you all about it if you like. Yes. No, no. Um, I felt that um, because it was a film that sort of left me with a lot of questions at the end. Yeah. 
it it just invited that sort of investigation and i haven't allowed any of that to sway my opinion i'm good, good, good. i'm going to stand by it and even though i acknowledge the flaws that other people have picked out they just didn't bother me to the extent no. uh that it clearly really bothered some other people fair enough um overall though i think it was one of these cases where a lot of people are nitpicking um over you know the usual detail thing the sort of mm. stuff that people just all want to do with absolutely everything now uh i think ultimately it's it's a look at the self-destructive nature of man in all its forms um just tackled in a very sort of thought provoking and um an enigmatic way mm. really um I think it's possible that a lot of people went in sort of thinking it was going to be an aliens-like experience. Um, it's probably got more in common with hard sci-fi that's actually more rooted in philosophy and asking questions about the nature of man and that mm. kind of thing. Um, so potentially sort of misrepresented all the promotional photography has been ladies with guns marching into an alien place and, you know, aspects like that. Even the title Annihilation gives, you know, is, is what you'd call a film about Bruce Willis venturing into space to stop a giant alien turd from hitting Earth or something, you know? Are you a fan of the title? Annihilation? Well, I understand it's based on the first of a trilogy of novels, um, mm. which this film apparently doesn't really adhere to no. that much and I did feel that the title um, was shoehorned in at the end it was like they said the name of the film they did you know that they sort of did that <laughs> bit at the end but I mean t- titles a title I, I, I didn't I didn't dislike the title and ultimately I guess it did have a purpose when um, Jennifer Jason Lee's character sort of revealed. Mm. I guess what the what was going on yeah. at the end, uh, it made it made a, it made perfect sense. So yeah, I've got no misgivings about it. It's just that I think the name, without that context, does already create a an image of what you expect the film to be. I don't like it. I think they could have done better. Referring it to Ex Machina, talking about the themes of that movie and how it flows in between the title i think that works i think this one if alex garland and team were to look at some of the feedback and wonder why people have maybe come into it with the wrong mindset i think there are two reasons one of them is the title as you say second is this like marvelification now of people watching films of this type and sci-fi so popular now that coming into it expecting to see like the start of a franchise or start of a, yeah. they know it's based on books. They know it's, you know, so, oh, how is this going to mean something later on? When in actual fact, Alex Garland has said he's not doing anything. He only based it on the first book with he, no sort of knowledge of what the other two would entail. I he based it on his impressions of the book. He yeah. read it a while ago, then wrote how he sort of felt about it. And he's saying he's not doing any sequels. So, we should concentrate it on as a whole. Yeah. So from that point of view, 
maybe that was maybe PR and not their, you know, but just how they pitched it. I think having it appear as a, a standalone film and maybe establishing that with the title being maybe a little more and a little more difficult. Mm. Um, I think that would have gone a lot further. Annihilation conjures up a lot, you know, is, is very evocative. And um, I think, you know, it, it does need to own that because the movie, while it refers to it, as you say, it's huge horned in and, you know, that some of the themes can be tied back to it. I don't feel it represents the my overall feeling of, film yeah so yeah that's my i'm not not i think they could have done a little better <laughs> um i so when you re- said you didn't like it do you mean the title of the film the title of the film okay sorry the title Just of the, the film, film. Okay, i okay. getting onto the film i really really did like the film okay i thought it was great um i think i didn't take it as as uh as this franchise i thought that it's very obvious what it's aiming for. It's very obvious what it's referring to. And the sci-fi-ness of everything is not what I've been thinking about since uh, since I've watched it. Thinking much more about like relationships and the way that, you know, even the themes of adultery through it. And again, that idea of sort of self-destruction rather than suicide, that thread of the movie Um jumping ahead to a little something they say a little further on that's way more interesting to me than the sci-fi stuff yes um which again really well handled which are all forms of annihilation as well yeah. you know thematically it is a very apt title uh and again ties back to the fact that this is more alex got it's, it's got it's garland's sort of top level of what he pulled from the the novel clearly and then just ran with it in a completely mm. different way uh i guess whatever he thought would work better as a standalone film and as you say divorced from any expectation of sequels or some overarching thing like i guess the for the novels to have stretched into a trilogy they must be more focused on the event yeah, the shimmer uh, and what that entails. Whereas he seems more concerned about the people entering the shimmer mm-hmm. at this particular juncture. I think a lot of people who have criticised it are really hung up on the logistics around the shimmer, what um, the government's been doing to tackle the shimmer, and all yeah. that. And when actually, it's I I personally found it more of an intimate story about people with nothing to lose. Apart from Natalie Portman, you know, going in, being being the only people willing to go in and see what lies beyond, in the knowledge that they are almost inevitably never returning. What do you think of the uh, of 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 performances? Is that's where I re- I feel a lot of the divide has been. Yes. Um. Since about whether you are on board with the feeling of of the film, or uh, it, with the the direction that the acting takes, it's. Face is the wrong word. It's very serious. It's very, very business like. It's very efficient. It does go into cliche somewhat mm-hmm. with you know how the the mechanisms of how they make us care about each of the characters. They're they're boiled down to a few key parts of them rather than, and that's possibly one of the faults of the movie. Although I actually thought it worked quite well. I thought the scene which people are saying is the most kind of convenient scene where the boat's going down the boat and she's describing each of the characters. Um, yeah, it's cheesy. And we'll get onto a, a feedback from someone that, that brings up Predator 
And but the dialogue in that is obviously quite, you know, very cheesy. Most into spectacles and, a lot of the time, yeah. you know. It's, go, go back and watch Prezzo. Great action, but you know, pay attention to the dialogue. Yeah, and b- because now we give that a pass, and now we're judging this film and how it this film has been judged has definitely been something I've really been thinking about. The way everyone comes at it, the fact that Mute has just come out, that Cloverfield Paradox has just come out. Right. Where Bright has just come out. Obviously all on the same platform, all dealing with the fantastical sci-fi in and and asking you to invest and all in universally these, derided as well. And asking you to invest in these worlds. And I think I do feel that Annihilation, the the idea, and we've talked about it before about the mechanics of um, writing and the most effective ways, and uh, it was really interesting. It really stayed with me what you're talking about that this localizing it on the shimmer, and that is something that the the books do refer to. It's in the southern thing, the southern reach or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the I, southern I reach need trilogy and this stuff. Um, but um, that they localizes it within a small space allows the story to be localized and give it context. Whereas some of these other, the Cloverfield paradox and all these other things, these are like sort of world spanning events or mute, for example, people have been against that movie because they don't believe the world that this character's interacting with. Mm. Um, I think that annihilation succeeds in its, in its mechanics. I think it's, it has um, it has similarities to a film called Stalker. Have you seen that film? I've never seen it, but I know of it. Yeah, yeah, the like the classic Russian sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, the idea of there being this area that you can go in and out of, and it's actually a really tangible sci-fi concept that you can really get behind. You can yeah. understand. It's a curtain. I understand what's on this side of it. I wonder what's on the other side of it. You've already you've got something to hook into. And yes, it's quite classic in that way, and works really well. Um, and yeah, I had a, a lot of fun with the film. Um, but again, referring to those other films and also the other films that we've done podcasts about, mm-hmm. the idea of saying that a film is bad and good, we've touched on it before. I'm kind of coming around to this idea of, did I have fun with with the movie? And that's really the, one of the only parameters. If, if the dialogue was bad or anything else was bad, did I, at the end of the film, have fun with it? Yeah. And... I, I feel that, you know, Cloverfield Paradox aside, I've, or I've, they're all pretty much the same, you know, but I, this film in particular, it the head came above the clouds a few times, particularly with the music. For me, I really loved the music. Mm. I thought it was really great. Who's uh, the composer on it? The Jeff Barrow and um, another chap who I forget his name. Uh, uh, this The guy from Porter's Head. Oh, really? He did, he did Ex Machina as well. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, um, yeah, he's really, really talented oh, I really guy. dug it. And um, does a, he's in a band called Beak or something that's without the singer in, in, in Porter's Head. Right. And, uh, yeah, I'm really, really big fan of his stuff. Like, tonally, like, it, that, you know, ends of the spectrum of um, sort of Zimmer and Williams, uh, sort of noises and versus melodic. I yes. think that he's working in that electronic space, like, really doing some really interesting things particularly at the end of the film with the, the climactic face-to-face uh, portman scene i thought the music was was really really good yeah the sound design there i thought was particularly good um almost to the point that i don't know if it was intentional that it was supposed to be 
the actual ambient sound of the scene as opposed to a soundtrack. Mm. That's what it felt like. Oh to yeah, me. like it was the it was the sound of this strange mimic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, creature at the time. I, yeah, that really stood out for me too. Um, I, yeah, that, there was a lot to enjoy about this. I mm. I, I remained fairly gripped throughout. So I I was I was unshackled from preconceived notions about it really. I knew nothing of the novel. The only obviously expectation I had is that I'm a big fan of Garland's mm. work. I'm a I'm a fan of the films that he's written. Yeah. Like Sunshine or the 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 books on, on which films have been based, like The Beach. Um I love Dread. I thought Ex Machina was one of my films of, of the year. And one thing I think that um, Annihilation does is sort of continue this thing, whether for budgetary requirements or no, um, of his pieces being these sort of chamber pieces, or at least mm. contained, quite, quite claustrophobic. Dread was definitely budgetary, but that really worked in its favour. Ex Machina was obviously all taken place in this isolated sort of home, this isolated compound. And Annihilation is more like a series of places that Natalie Portman is mm. trapped in. Initially, she's trapped um, in, in in this limbo where yeah. she's she's trying to move on from her apparently dead husband. Yeah, um, and then she's you know quite literally trapped in a government facility mm-hmm. when her husband returns, and then she's trapped on the other side of the shimmer, which, as you said, mm. is the other side of the curtain, and, and it's this zone. That that you know that no one's ever returned from. So she goes from these varying states of sort of, even though it's it's probably the most open film mm. of his of his last few. It, it's still about being contained, and it's still a, there's still an element of claustrophobia that pervades throughout it. I think. Right. Let's get down to it. Portman. Yes, yes or no? Yes. She's so good, isn't she? I thought she was brilliant. It? Really brilliant. I was thinking about her special moves, a sort of stupid idea of what is it that a particular actor or actress does really well, uh, referring like, back to the case you, yeah, e- yeah. episode of, of uh, Kirsten Stewart does that uneasiness, uncomfortable in her own skin. Yes, vibe. yes. Um, Natalie Portman just pulls out crying that connects to me so like really deeply. She I don't acts, know what it is. She acts with the eyes. She acts with the eyes. Even right back to Leon, I was thinking about the scene of her up at the um, a peephole of the door oh, with yeah, uh, yeah, Leon yeah. looking through and she's crying and she's not trying to let the guys behind them see. Like from the very first movie she's doing, even through to, I know you're not going to like me saying this, the um, Revenge of the Sith. Right. Where she says to Anakin that, um, that he's breaking her heart. I don't care anymore. She just sells that bit to me. It's just so good. Like she's really amazing. And in this film, it's just allowed so much bandwidth to be through. Maybe just, I mean, one of her, like a really, really great performance. And one of her best is a, is a strange is a strange one. She's done so much cool stuff. And you think like, sort of, I was going back through and thinking that um, Natalie Portman, it's been like 23 years of watching her in film. 23? Yeah, nuts, if you think it? that... Um, she's, a, she's, a ch- she's one of those um, child actors who's in that rare position where she hasn't really skipped a beat. You know, she went off and studied. Mm. She got a Harvard degree at Harvard, didn't yeah. she? Um, and, then, and then sort of went straight back into it and has just always, you know, 
Black Swan obviously being a, a mm. total career highlight. Um, back to like Heat. She was great yeah, in that. Oh my like, God. Really great in Heat. Like she'd been consistently really good. I a really big big fan of her. Even I'm not of watching the, any of her rom commy stuff. Didn't she do that no, one? So that friends. There's something for every every bit. She did a um there's an addendum to the um Darjeeling Limited. Okay. There's a hotel something. Oh, I should research this stuff. With uh, Jason Schwartzman, where they're just in a hotel room for like 10, 15 oh, not minutes. Oh, this. It's really good. And they're just, it's just a back and forth. Um, and it, it's who he's texting in the movie. So you know her character uh, later on, you know, where he's, um, he's talking about them, uh, talking about his ex-girlfriend. Yes, yes. And oh, he, he checks her answer phone messages, sorry, um, in the movie. And it's Natalie Portman's character. And you know it. Cause you, and when I saw it at the cinema, they played it just before. It's great. Mm. And... Um, and she's in that. And it was during one of her periods where she hadn't really been in films a lot. It was, I remember it was her hair was short because she had done V for Vendetta. So it was when her hair was kind of just after that. Yeah, just, just. Yeah, just so, um, so sort of growing out. And I just remember just like being really pleased that she was in it, you know. And so this film's been, you know, this film really brought her back to the forefront. She just had some babies and had some time off and mm-hmm. she's just come back, absolutely smashed it this one so yeah big big fan um, um and and to be honest you know with regards to the the rest of the cast i mean oscar oscar isaac is in it a bit it's not really his film but <laughs> but yeah he's he's given some very interesting bits to play because he is in effect playing a sort of multitude mm. of characters you know he yeah he's he's playing the you know, husband who has to do mysterious military operations all yeah. the time, who's in a loving relationship, and then he has to play the portrayed husband, who is sort of quietly known that... No. The way they reveal that's quite good. You go back and you look yeah, back they, at how he was behaving, like, say, on the bed when he was saying goodbye. Yes. It seemed, at once, it seemed a little cold. And then now you go back and you see back of the movie, which is why, again, I think a rewatch would be really, really good on this film to see through sort of contextually yeah. now knowing what happens at the end of the film. Yeah. I think would um it that's would it. So he's playing the, more. he's playing the sort of duplicate mm. uh husband as well, Kane, duplicate Kane. Um Alien reference? Yes. Uh, well apparently in the book none of the characters have names. They're all nameless in the book. Mm. Uh, or at least her all her partners who go yeah. to the shimmer aren't remain nameless anyway. There's no you know, I don't believe Kane has a name either. Um, and then he also plays the, the, I guess, the metamorphosing Kane as yeah. well. So the, the ones that we see glimpses of. Um, at one point, his accent changes. Yeah. Um, That's great. That another bit. another side effect of, yeah. you know, the, the refractive nature of the Shimmer. Mm. Um, to, to sort of go into that. I I thought that was a great idea. Like, yeah, it required a bit of exposition, but I mean, it's it's quite a complex idea. You know, the idea that in this space, it's not just light that's refracted; it's everything. And I like the idea it was a prism because throughout that, I'd already spotted the sort of the use of prismatic colours, mm. the sort of spectrum yeah. that was appearing in the light everywhere was already hinting and already created that sense of unease. But what I also liked about it is typically when they go into these, you know, mysterious alien places, 
they're not places of colour and beauty. The palette here was actually like rainbows and pastels mm. and all these really beautiful creations, you know, this ongoing morphing uh, collections of flowers. Even even the guy who had moving intestines who then sort of blown apart, yeah. become this sort of kaleidoscope of, you know, of, of all forms of matter um the 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 people shaped plants the you know that the, the, and e- even even the the creatures that we saw these these hybridized creatures had elements of sort of color to them the alligator i believe had these red markings on yeah. it and those cg deer very bad cg deer uh, it looked like a Pokemon, by the way. Looked like Sourcebook. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very much like Sourcebook. Um, which was what I was going to say. I was gonna, one of my sort of mental notes for this film was like, oh, this is like the, the bleak the bleak Pokemon story. It's like if, some, if they gave like the concept of Pokemon to some sort of hard-edged sci-fi writer and said like, why do Pokemon exist in this planet? Like what's there? Yeah. How, how do they end up here? Like I think annihilation would be the product of that person's thing. It's like actually this alien thing just came over and scrambled a bunch of DNA. Yeah. And that's why there's a living bag of rubbish and a set of keys <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's sentient. You know, annihilation basically explains Pokemon. It's brilliant. Um <laughs> The keys are amazing. That's a thesis. Yeah, cleft keys. Yeah, the, the living ice cream. All of this is possible in the shimmer. Think about it. It's 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 a Pokemon shared universe film. That's my theory. Yeah, just jumping back to Oscar Isaac's changing accent, by the way. Did you pick up why that was? Um, my, my assumption was that of, of all the other things that were happening was, you know, one of his comrades had that accent and he was just... Um, in in um, psychology, your um, people that change their accents depending on where they are and who they're talking to seen as being more adaptable yes. to uh, different environments. I kind of thought that was a little nod to that theory. Oh, I see, I see. You know, the idea that everyone's evolving and changing in different ways, like on, on you know, really quickly in the shimmer, the closer you get to the middle, and, and that that's one of the effects. I kind of th- wondered whether that was a... It's actually to, why I basically don't sound like I'm from the Midlands. It's because I'm highly intelligent, from the shimmer. adaptable the human shimmer being. On you. Yes. Um, the real Dan died many, many years ago. Um, I'm going to go to a bit of uh, feedback that we had user from feedback. Uh, Chris Schilling, who says he found Annihilation fascinating, absorbing, and well-performed, though not quite up there with Garland's Ex Machina. Agreed. Marred slightly by odd pacing, the first act drags, third act feels rushed, but I sense it will re- reward repeat viewings, leagues above Cloverfield, etc., I'm on board with that. I think that's totally Pretty fair. Much. Um, special mention for Tessa Thompson, who was so unrecognisable from her last role that it genuinely took me a good hour to realise it was her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was great, wasn't she? She, she went really well. It, it might be one of my least favourite or one of the bits of the movie that I didn't get the succumbing to the shimmer idea. Yes. Um, I sort of wondered a little bit about that. If I had any questions, that bit of it was, can you psychologically give yourself over to it? That's the bit that I didn't really understand because I will say, I think I pretty much got 
like everything. I was really happy that I'd had a lot of people say they've got loads of questions, they've yes, got loads yeah. of other bits and pieces. I think I'm pretty much there. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to seeing it again. I think now but, I've had time to, to cogitate. Um, I, yeah. Great I, word. I feel like I, I've digested it. I feel like, yeah, I'm, um, I'm pretty much on board with it. I think, I think with Tessa Thompson's character is, it's kind of explained away, I guess, in that boat conversation. Mm. Now I'm, it does have some of the tropes of films like Aliens and Predator because you're introduced to a group of people and so many of them aren't very successful about doing it, but you, you know, when you've got a, an ensemble sort of, mm. you know, a group of cast of characters, you know, this is first and foremost, Natalie Portman's film. They're already going, but obviously she needs the motivation. So you need these people around you, but they're, they're going to be archetypes. For, for the time it takes to, I guess, introduce them, to get them into the shimmer, to, to give you a sort of a shorthand way of understanding who they are, what their reasons are, empathising with them. It's got a job to do. It's got a job to do. And you know, the reason that, why Alien will always be brought up in this conversation is that is a 10 out of 10 way of getting it done. In that amount of time, in the 25 minutes that it takes... Alien to, and Aliens, I think, both do a bang-up job. I think I care more about the about the Nostromo than... Oh, no, no, um, I care more about the people on the Nostromo, but I still think they made a bunch of what would otherwise be just general grunts yeah. incredibly memorable. Everyone yeah. remembers... That's very, that's, that's, that's very that's, true. You know, you know. But ultimately, the, the mechanisms that the first one employs in that setting you up that this is a company, that there are people within it asking you to bring your preconceived notions of what a workplace would be like in space and showing it to you in a in a in a really evocative way again using that word again um but i think by the time that things start to happen um you really care about them but as i get older i go back and i kind of look at the um and the fact this idea of prequels and going back and rewriting timelines um which again we'll, we'll, we'll bring up later i would watch like a whole film about just the nostromo on like a normal mission like with stuff like happening i think it would the be an eventful nostromo mission yeah, yeah it would be cool i think it would be good to just like spend spend time with them even you know i know you could never do it as a film and and then have like Alien richard richard link later does uh <laughs> yeah it's like a really long um we bring up mumblecore all the time don't we the sort of stupid you know the interactions between them all are sort of done really well yeah um, and um so going Talking about Alex Garland and particularly him as a director, as we've grown with him as a writer, then sort of a screenwriter and working and then being more involved in films and moving up. Um, did you know the thing about Dread, about um, what Carl Urban said about Alex Garland? No. That he uh, reckoned, gave an interview saying that he should be credited for Dread, directing Dread, Um uh, rather than uh, Pete Travis, who's the IMDb listed director, he's saying that he had such an influence on the on the film. Um, I heard that he was very heavily involved in the editing suite, particularly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, in that regard, but yeah, I, I think his not necessarily an unorthodox journey, but it's been quite a natural curve mm. from being a writer into director. 
And I do remember a lot of the times that he was interviewed for Ex Machina, there was very much an air of reluctance to be acknowledged as a director. I think some people want to be a director because they like that position of authority. Yeah. They like to guide it. And I, one of the things I remember him saying is that he really treated Ex Machina as a collaborative experience yeah. and that everyone involved in the production of it was very much part of that creative process. He wasn't, he would never lay claim to being an auteur, for example. Yeah, it was very exactly. much like, you know, I, I know what I want the film to be, but I don't necessarily have the technical nous to make that a reality. So I'm very dependent on my mm. DOP. I'm very dependent on my gaffer. I'm very, you know, very dependent on those people to get the lighting right, to get the framing right, to get all that. And it's part of the process. And, you know, that's, that's as much a part, I think, of being a good director as anything else is being open to collaboration yeah. and understanding that you play a pivotal but not necessarily um, you know, isolated part in the, in the filmmaking process. Yeah. And I do think that's the thing that a lot of people do seem to forget about films is you know, no matter how highly you rate a lot of directors they are only as good as the team they assemble around as well um he's an anti-director an anti-director yeah (laughs) um you know we've got the film running in the background and again i've seen i don't know people just really have it in for this you know I i think it does have a lot of beautifully framed scenes there is one comment i don't know if you wrote it down but someone said it felt like concept art for a video game yeah. stitched together into a film. I don't know if you've got the name of the person uh, who said that. I'll see if I can find it. But um, there, there were parts where, yeah, I genuinely thought, yeah, it does. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, you know, I, I think they're sort of jokingly implying that it was just a string of beautifully framed shots, uh, you know, with a, with a story then sort of thrown in, sort of stitched that all together. Um, but but there were a lot of scenes where I just really appreciated um, how how painterly they almost were. Again, which goes back to the film's palette as well. Yeah. Um, which immediately creates a sense of the alien on a on a on Earth. You know, the, there's a sense of an alien environment on Earth, and it's very much to do with the 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 way that the environment is 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 framed and and coloured. Well, yeah. Um, it- as soon as they go into the shimmer, there's Mad Max style almost. I feel that every frame is then kind of coloured a particular way. Every glare of light has that shimmer, mm-hmm. um, bubble, oil effect to yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, oh, by the way, going back, that was John Edwards that gave us the video game. Oh, it was Euclidean boxes. Boxes, yes. Thank you very much for that. Um, I also would, just to, in case we don't get back to it, the Firewatch uh, house was in this movie as well later on they stop they have their argument in you know like the the watching tower yes and and that's from firewatch isn't it that's pretty pretty much yeah it goes without saying alex garland um is very heavily influenced by video games i used to be a big fan of the teletext gaming page digitizer oh yeah and alex garland infamously won a competition on digitizer (laughs) years and years years ago before he wrote the beach Oh, really? And the idea of the competition was that you had to hold up a sign. I can't remember what the message was. It was something typically stupid for Digitizer. But you had to hold it up in sort of the most exotic location you could. Mm. And Alex Garland held the sign up in Thailand. Right, right. Which was why he was there. And that's what inspired him writing The Beach. Yeah. 
So, cool. you know, and then he was also attached to writing the Halo film that never happened. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, he obviously was involved in the, obviously, it's not obviously if you don't know, he was involved in uh, the writing of Enslaved for Ninja Theory. That's right, that's right. Well, yeah. Um, didn't he contribute to Devil May Cry as well? Yes, that's right. Devil May Cry. DMC. Very good. So, um, so yeah, you know his 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 roots are there, and I do think if elements of it do feel a bit video gamey, I I think it's actually because he draws some of the best elements from gaming into uh, into his films, rather than the worst elements that a lot of action directors um, seem seem intent on doing. So um, yeah, oh, we do have the um, the film on in the background. I'd like to put it on for Dan. Do you recognise this uh, location near Reading? Is it really? It's where the um, where the Star Wars base is in um, in uh, Force Awakens. Really, and at the very start of um, of uh, the Last Jedi, you know the mounds that yes, they yes. parked the thing. Yeah, it's just that, that the same that's the same place. In it's near Reading. Uh, fact fans. Um, yeah. so, so that's the military sort of installation they end up at for a spell where they discover the uh, the first tape. Of the previous crew, exactly. That, yeah. I found that section very event horizony, actually. Definitely, and it's the second time we've referred to that movie, yeah. obviously hangs quite high in our esteem, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, always discovering the videotape of what mm. went before. Yeah, I think is always a really compelling narrative device. I really like that, um, and this one is particularly gruesome. It's a real moment of proper horror. I heard a, um, a my worst <clears throat> nitpick. Um, about this movie um, I read today that someone <laughs> hates in that mechanic when they find a video yeah. and then look at it that when it goes full screen it's not of the quality of the device that it was taken on you know so when that was you... very deliberately employed in this though there were there were moments where she was watching things and it would cut to how it was at the time so you you were no longer watching the video you are now witnessing the events as they transpired yeah 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 it's uh it's definitely it's not uh, hard <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah so just for full uh full disclosure when we record this podcast um at my house um we in my front room and have the movie running at the same time so we're kind of it's kind of cool kind of keeps the atmosphere going. Mine. i ban all screens ban all screens <laughs> yes dan does ban all screens he tells me off <laughs> screens um I'm going to go to another uh, another bit of feedback that we had um, from uh, Fockland, uh saying, I'm halfway through the book at the moment, somewhat looking forward to seeing the film when I'm done. The book is freaking awesome, though. I'm hooked by its intrigue and the world it has built and thrown the reader into, which, was, uh, which is quite cool. I hope that you uh, get around to finishing. You want to read all three of the books. That'll be crazy. Yeah, I feel... Um, um... It's going to be quite a, a shock, by all accounts. Yeah. From what I've read. Oh, wait. I want to get their name right. Phocian. 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 Okay, sorry. There, there Thanks, Phocian. Phocian. Thank you very much. Um, and bringing on to my next piece of uh, of feedback, again, from my wife. We had uh, last... Um, my wife. My wife. Um, did you get the Bjork connection with this movie? No. So... Later on, when Natalie Portman is walking through the really fantastical bit, just as she's getting to the lighthouse, yes, Vic said as we were watching it, "Oh, it's like a Bjork video, like the biophilia videos that she did." Right. Yes. Um, 
And it actually turns out she did a little bit of research afterwards doing my job for me, and there is actually a deeper Bjork connection. So um, the environmental philosopher called uh, Timothy Morton, who was an influence on the writer of the book, employs the term hyperobjects to describe objects that are so massively distributed in time and space that they transcend spatio-temporal specificity, <laughs> which is a term the author has used to the, describe the shimmer. Mm-hmm. So, for example, just quickly, global warming is a hyperobject because it impacts meteorological conditions such as tornado formation, meaning that we don't feel global warming specifically, but we experience tornadoes yeah. as they cause damage, like meaning that global warming is a hyperobject because it's too out of our sphere of understanding. We can only really understand what it causes. The, the side effects of it, I guess. Exactly. Um, um, so thus, non-locality describes the manner in which a hyperobject becomes more substantial than the local manifestations they produce. So he's saying that hyperobjects beggar our imagination and hence our powers of response. Another example he gives really interestingly is styrofoam. Hmm. That uh, it's a, it's something that we have created but actually won't leave our earth for another 500 years like in terms of decay. Mm-hmm. And so it's very similar styrofoam is similar in that regard to plutonium which is his original hyperobject. The connection with Bjork is that his term hyperobject was inspired by the Bjork song Hyper Ballad, which yes. is um, which is one of her early. So there was another connection with Bjork, wow. which is um, quite a rabbit hole to go down. I hope uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, ha, huh. pretty cool, right? So was that era of Bjork the time that she was with the crazy artist who did the, did the Cremaster cycle? And all that side when she went into a later than the when she wrote that song that yes, song's yes. unavailable yeah yeah but biophilia is all around that all that, around time. that period yeah, yeah. she went full yeah really really cool and um, we're definitely in this house we love love and uh, respect Bjork <laughs> very much um, so yeah going back to some of the um, actors in in the film yes um, I've got to kind of give a shout out to Jennifer Jason Lee yep another. Uh, movie actress that's been around even longer than than Natalie Portman in some incredible films. Sort of made a few lists of the movies that um you know since, since the early eighties. In fact, so Fast Time at Ridgemont High. Yeah, she was in, incredible in uh, incredible in all these films. I'm not going to keep saying incredible. Backdraft, Single White Female, Shortcuts, Robert Altman's Shortcuts, Existence. She was in Road to Perdition, Greenberg, and obviously in The Hateful Eight. Oh, Greenberg, really, I really liked. Yeah. I watched that. And in The Hateful oh, Eight, Daisy. Uh, Still haven't seen The Hateful Eight, but yes, I should say she's really good. She's definitely the best, one of the best bits about well, we've, it. We've already gone over my thoughts on Latter Day Tarantino, but it's worth watching. She is really good in it. Worth watching for her and uh, Kurt Russell, definitely. Right. But it's too long. So, um, Sally Menke. So yeah, it seems that her performance is the one that's going for the most stick. And I did really like the tone that she sets early on in the film. That, that, that again, using the word mechanic, that person that describes the, the MacGuffin to you has to sell the concept. And I think she does that really well, that detachedness yes. of, of the way that her delivery was really deadpan. And obviously you find out later that she's terminally ill and that's her kind of reason, sort of the feeding back into her... It's twofold, isn't it? It's that she's witnessed so many people go in. She's yeah. had to evaluate so many people. 
Which she herself in. knows is going to die. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why she puts herself forward. This is the uh, fire oh, that's watch. the firewatch yeah, fire bit. Um, totally useless for anyone listening. Well, <laughs> Unless fun, you uh, start the movie well, at the start of the podcast. I was trying to find the the name of who she reminds me of, and it reminds me. I don't know if you ever watched Silicon Valley, the TV show. No, I haven't seen it. But her delivery really reminds me of um, of Laurie Bream in that, who um, took over when the actor who was portraying the head of the the company uh the main character was trying to sort of uh i guess was sort of getting mentored in the first series i believe mm. he he died in real life in tragic circumstances and she this actress um suzanne cryer took over and played this character called laurie bream right who's got this very sort of unique way of talking a very sort of deadpan unemotional way of a very matter of fact about mm. things and it, you know there's there's no sort of there's no small talk. There's no wasted words. Mm. And everyone just finds her really baffling because she really is just like, she just says what she's doing. And, yeah. you know, the fact that she's pregnant or whatever is not something that's cause for celebration or any sort of wonder or anything. It's just something else that happens. Yeah. Um, and I was immediately sort of drawing that parallel when 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 Jennifer Jason Lee sort of did did her thing. So I've seen mm. people go, well, she seems bored. She seems sarcastic. She seems whatever else. Slight uh, smile in some moments. Yeah, and 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 it was just I, I guess it was sort of someone who had spent their lives listening to other people. You know, have to discuss their mental state and, mm. and whatever else, and then was. Was was fine at the point. Was like, well, what about me? It's wearing, you know, that to be in that position for so long, and then to be in a point where you're doing it because you're basically leading people to certain death. Yeah, I just thought she, and then to find out that you yourself are about are going to die. Mm. I, I think she kind of portrayed someone who had really just had it, <laughs> you know, just had enough. But definitely the uh, the scene later on with the uh, that bit where I do think this bit could have been dropped out of the movie. Um, it is a quite a long film, and talking of trimming it, I'm always a fan of trying to bring of course get it down to that one thirty down to that one thirty. Her CGI light coming out of her mouth bit of the movie can could just go for me when she leaves. In uh, just before getting to the lighthouse, I'm. I think she's done a really great job in the film. I don't think that she actually added that bit that mm. much there, even though I think it was in there to explain some of the some of the parts of the movie. I think I'd already got there. I think it had done a really yes. good job of of, lead, of leading me there, especially as that's the bit where she does say the name of the film, the hot tub time machine. Look at the camera moment. You yeah, know, yeah, which, um, yeah, yeah, I yeah, do yeah. Uh, did stick, take me out of the movie slightly in a bit where it was just about to lead into this incredible mirror scene, music, massive musical peak of the film. Yeah. Um, what did you think of that scene? That uh, that, uh, what, that her and mirror and her oh, the mirror part. Um, yeah. No, I thought, I thought it was great. As we've already discussed, you know, I think the sound design was such a huge part of it. No, I mean actually, actually like the like the look of it, the look of no, the, no, no, the yeah, so interpretive like, dance, almost. It, it was, yeah, it definitely had that feel of sort of yeah, modern modern interpretive dance. There's a sort of balletic quality to it. To the even to the way that Natalie Portman sort of collapses to the ground. Yeah, and there's a sort of there's a sort of weird or kind of awkward grace to it all. 
And that, that one had the, you know, using her chops from uh, Black Swan. That was mm-hmm. where she mostly kind of went back to. And, and that, that, that it was also a, it was a callback to what she was discovering when she was looking at blood samples under the, under the microscope was that for every drop of blood, there was a duplicate cell, mm. um, which had the sort of shimmery mm. quality to it. And so what you were then seeing was a drop of her blood mingled with the, the qualities of the, the core of the shimmer, yeah. um, creating exactly the same effects and these duplicate cells, you know, mirroring each other, mm. but, but to the point that one side was, sentient and the other side to that point didn't really have any full intelligence or cognizance it was just doing what the other side was doing yeah without any i guess without any malice so when she was running away it was just running i guess it should have run in the opposite direction i suppose but um you know well, i was thinking about that and it's another my probably my second level of nitpicks i wasn't on board with was saying that if that was a mirror image why didn't it mirror every bit of it but yeah. i was thinking that it was a genesis moment it was part mimicking and maybe every now and then was displaying it yeah so it wouldn't be a hundred percent i mean no. this <laughs> adding realism or metaphysics to this insane uh scene is, yeah, is stupid let's, anyway let's, let's explain the end of 2001 more right here. but you yeah. know it's, it's, it's just it's <laughs> I think any film that has the number of memorable scenes that Annihilation has can't really be con- considered a write-off. There's a lot of mediocre films out there. There's a lot of bad films out there. Um, and even if you do think that this film's subpar, you know, you do have to acknowledge that it's got some really unique ideas in there that you haven't really seen before. No. Some of which are really disturbing. Mm. Some of which are just spellbinding i guess that that whole exchange is mm. so strange but and, and 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 the way that it plays out again people are like oh why does it have to end in such a mundane way it plays up to the idea that this mimic mm. hasn't quite fully developed yet yeah. it's it's copying it's it's not it hasn't got all of the the thoughts, the emotions, the feelings. It's it's just, it's, it's replicated itself at a, at a at an at an atomic level mm. from from a cellular level upward, but has yet to develop thought and feeling and individuality, and so it, it just sees what it's a mirror of and decides that well, it should just try and copy that. Yeah. Before that point, I guess. The the overall point of the Jennifer Jason Lee scene and the overall point of the Tessa Thompson scene that you didn't quite get before. I mean, one, it very played, it very obviously played up to her self harm scars yeah. and there's mutating into the thing, into the vines and her mm. becoming part of that. And um, to the line of the boat about the fact she was doing it to remind herself she was alive. Yeah, that becoming a living plant organism was, I guess, the ultimate expression of whatever it was. And also that most of these people weren't exactly thinking straight when their DNA was all jumbled up Being anyway. mash up. So she was self-destructive. Jennifer Jason Lee knew she was dying and so gave herself over wholeheartedly to what mm. this thing was and realised it represented a new beginning for everybody. In a, in I guess in ultimately quite a nihilistic gesture is like well I'm going out so let's just let's just go for the old complete annihilation of humanity the, the complete annihilation of Earth as we know mm. it. let's let's remix 
Earth. I mean, that's the overall message of the Shimmer. The Shimmer is remixing Earth. Yeah. It's creating a crazy mashup of what we know Earth to be. Natalie Portman's character is the only one who's gone in with a purpose that's not self-destructive. She's gone in with a purpose of doing something for the person she loves, trying to figure out what's wrong with him and trying to get it back. So when she goes into the Shimmer, she already has has it in her head that she needs to go back. Everyone else who's sort of gone in there up to that point, I guess, has um, had no course to go back. Oscar Isaac, I think, went in knowing that Natalie Portman was cheating on him with the idea that he didn't care that he didn't go back, but gradually came to the realisation that, yes, he did. Yeah. Which is why he instructed his double to go back and find her mm. in a sort of crazy act of um, self-immolation, self-annihilation, stroke, forgiveness. Yeah. It was a new beginning. He was literally like ruining himself to allow a new version of him to rejoin society devoid of the memories of her betrayal. Yeah. A blank slate version of him that she could rebuild her relationship with. Natalie Portman, by the same token, gets to that point um, and real and transfers the self-destructiveness over to the being. Yeah. Picks up a grenade. They don't know what a grenade is. They don't have the knowledge of what that is. That person, that, being has no knowledge of what the outcome is. Yeah. So she steps away. The The concept of self-destructiveness is therefore then transferred into that being who then then transfers that entire nature of self-destructive, humanity's yeah. self-destructive nature into the core <laughs> of, yeah. of the shimmer. Yeah. And therefore, all these people have gone in who have been self-destructive and given themselves over to the shimmer. The shimmer gives itself over to the, the concept of self-destruction. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's completely annihilated in the process. And so Natalie Portman emerges from that, I guess, still affected by the refractive nature of the shimmer. Yeah. Um, one one cool little detail I liked was the, um, the tattoo mm, from the other yeah, lady yeah. appearing on her arm. Yeah. Um, and then when she rejoins Oscar Isaac, there's then the question of, well, we know for sure that Oscar Isaac's Kane is not Kane. Yeah. It's alien Kane. Um, but Natalie Portman is or was her, but not in the fact that she's the, the you know, there's, there's no ambiguity there. She's definitely her fundamentally, but she still has been changed. Yeah. At a core level, yeah, her cellular makeup has been changed at a core level. So even if she has destroyed the the, the shimmer, mm. she still, as we understand it, as we understand it anyway. If there's a sequel, uh, which I'm guessing there won't be, she still has retained some of the properties of that, but I guess maintained her humanity and her sentience. She's she's maintained control over it, whereas everybody else gave themselves over to it. Mm. She's on the other. She's the one who's in. In charge, I guess. Uh, that's what I got from it, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a that's a really fair fair reading of it. Uh, the ending for me for me was just more of a like thriller moment. Like, oh well, all this stuff is oh, done. Oh, as in Michael Jackson's we think thriller. We're done. You know, and then oh, we see the is, eye. Yeah, yeah. Then we see the eye thing. Just for that little like twist at the end. It's a it's an old trick. I don't massively think that. The, the eyes moving around necessarily mean anything um, or, or don't mean as much to me as the journey that kind of got us there. That bit at the end is nice for a little hairs up at, at 
the end moment, which is it happened in movies for for a while. Even what say like uh, version of the body snatchers, that kind mm. of final little twist. Yes, is right at the end. But twist well, is the, the wrong the, word. Not in a M Night Shyamalan thing. It's just that really tiny just, little just beat. Sort of, yeah, at just, the end. just something that just pulls the rug out from under you a little bit at the which, end, which takes you back to that sort of classic era of late seventies movies that version of the body snatchers was where you know. Everything doesn't get tied up in a nice bow for you. They don't go back to their house and live a normal life. It's just I'm just going to give you that little bit of a of a crazy bit to it. I think Stranger Things did it with the end of the first series yes. really well. That quick flash of the of the um, of the upside down. Um, no spoilers. Everyone should have seen it by now, shouldn't they? God, Stranger my, my God, everyone's seen Stranger Things, haven't they? Crazy, right? Um, so I'm going to take us to. Um, a last take on it that you sent me. Oh, is this from? Yes. So this is a friend of mine, James, uh, James Buttress, who um really didn't like it. Well, I think it's quite interesting to try and have a full spectrum of. of oh yeah, no, I mean, we've absolutely. been very um, we've been very complimentary. I'll tell, and I tell you what, and we haven't talked about the. The bear, and he sort of brings it up. He calls it an angry aardvark. Well, let's well let's let's lead into talking about the bear. We're actually coming up to it in um, in the movie as we go as well. But um, a couple of glorious set pieces. Um, I'm looking at you, angry aardvark, stroke bear, <laughs> and um, weird shiny mimic man. And some delicious set design couldn't prevent this B movie boar fest from plodding towards a derivative and shambolic death. Forgettable, shallow, cliched characters, stiff dialogue exposition overload scientists that were only smart when their lines called for it gaping plot holes and flawed logic portman's overacting jennifer jason lee looking totally bored throughout (laughs) and i felt there was this huge vacuum during the team's interactions where some light humor would have served the film well yet we weren't given the characters to deliver it it took itself far too seriously and deflated like a shit souffle as a result great line um um, that's me saying great line. He didn't say great line. Um, I mean, do you I, mean like a badly made souffle or a, a literally a shit souffle? I think souffle? It's, a, it's a shit souffle. Um, <laughs> I spent the whole film wishing I was re-watching Predator instead. I spent most films wishing I was re-watching yeah, Predator that's a, Yeah, that's pretty fair that's for a given. most movies. <laughs> I'm not a sci-fi guy, but I do think Ex Machina is a masterpiece. This is just a bit naff. I'm aware it's been getting some rave reviews. I have no idea how. <laughs> he says very nicely, looking forward to hearing what you guys make of it. <laughs> what we made of it is that you're wrong. You've <laughs> just been sat here for the last night going, no, 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 it's wrong. cool, man. I, you know, like I, I, I definitely have, um, what I would counter that with is that this film, it wasn't boring. It wasn't, you know, coming, if, the Cloverfield paradox can have anything leveled at it. It's that by the end of it, you feel that you just kind of wasted your time a little bit. Yeah. And that's the worst thing to come out of a movie on. Yeah. A bad movie can still be enjoyed on yes. a number of levels. A movie that everyone's talking about can be on a number of levels because even you've got that counterpoint, you've got that argument. Our podcast is all the better from having a, a, a an alternate take on it. Of course. So there is an inherent value, you know, and I think that well, that's that, why, and that's exactly why we invite feedback. We do, and I think a, a, a decent time to um, remind everyone that we really love 
every bit of interaction we've had so far, we think we can have more. Um, if you've listened to this, love what you know what we've been talking about. Don't love what we've been talking about. Think we can do things a certain way. Get in contact with us on Twitter. Um, I am at Alex Alex Alex. Um, uh, that's A L X three times, and Dan is Mr. Pointyhead at Mr. Pointyhead. Just uh, yeah, drop us a note. Um, what we're going to do is um, let you know what the next movie is going to be. We'll talk about that at the end. At the end, yes. Um, but yeah, try and watch it and then let us know. Just like that. Um, this is, I, I really like hearing what other other people think. Yeah, me proper too. people, like proper people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, not some. Um, kind oh. of crappy version of uh, some review that they want to get on the poster, which is w- what brings me round to my final point about this movie, about the idea that we're watching it on Netflix and other people are watching it on the cinemas. And this trend now of see it on the biggest screen you can find or a yeah, cinematic yeah, 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 experience yeah, yeah. or all these posters, that's the new... Uh, line that goes on every movie poster is got to go to the cinema like that's what's being picked out when it comes down to it what it what's better now your 4k tv at home in your house watching this movie at any time you want watching it for much less than you know the 30-esque pound you're going to spend on got a couple of years yeah yeah you know it's much closer now. I do love the cinema. I do think it's a really good experience. I love treating myself to it. There's a new cinema just open near us that is getting kind of mixed reviews, but I, I watched The Shape of Water there on a sofa um, in a pretty empty cinema, and I had a really great experience. It was one of the impact screens. Yeah. Screen. You clearly had a more respectful there are audience places than the one when that, I went to see Black Panther there. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are There is a place for both of them. Um, would you have liked to have seen this at the cinema or do you think you got everything out of it watching it at home or do you think you got more of it watching it at home? Um, I don't really think this film would have benefited a great deal. Obviously, to see some of the scenes on a larger screen, to hear the soundtrack on an incredible sound system would obviously have improve the overall experience but would it have made the film any better no no mm. and 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 that's all it is i mean it's it, it's like anything you become acclimatized to things very quickly when you go from a small tv to a big tv the big tv suddenly feels very massive and the small tv suddenly feels very small but then you spend a month with that tv and that tv feels normal <laughs> yeah you know, cinemas always feel novelty because you don't have a cinema, you don't have a screen of that size at your house. Every time you go, it feels substantially larger and 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 more sort of fantastic than than what you're used to at home. Um, I do love going to see certain types of films in those environments, but more because of the shared mm. experience element of it. Like when I went to see Shape of Water, I went to a Curzon. I saw it on a fairly small screen, but it was a really nice respectful quiet audience who you know would all generally quite enchanted by and i quite liked that vibe of sitting and they was actually quite a mature crowd mm. you know like i was on 37 i think i was like the youngest person in there um but i i enjoyed that sort of side of it but with some of the films that i've watched for this you know personal shopper l 
these films, I don't think, really gain anything. And, you know, it's the same people who go, well, I, I work in studios and I master sound and let me tell you what you're hearing on these compressed versions of audio when you listen to it on Spotify are, are total bullshit. You should be listening to it at the same quality I am. And it's like, well, frankly, per- person, we don't have tens of thousands of pounds to spend <laughs> on the audio equipment. You have to do what you fucking do professionally. So don't judge the way I listen to my music. Ditto for people who are very snobby about doing that. You know, it can, when they were showing Netflix films, the critics were booing the films because yeah. they were Netflix films. It's just like, get over it. Fundamentally, they're all delivery systems. Mm. For a story, that's that's what cinema should be, and regardless of whether you're sort of watching it on your phone or watching it on a you know IMAX screen, if if the person, if the people responsible for the film have done a good job, a good enough job, then that aspect of it shouldn't really matter. As I say, it could enhance your experience of the film, but no screen of any size can save bad dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. Or poor acting or whatever. Those aspects very rapidly fall by the wayside. You know, the the the, the size of the size of the screen, the quality of the sound doesn't really hurt things. A good film is a good film on good film screen. is a good film on its own but, merits. Um, I am going to invite you to think of a great cinema experience where, in particular, it worked quite well. I've got mine first. Um, one that really comes to mind for me is at the uh, Clapham uh, Picture House. I saw Drag Me to Hell, a movie that is, you know, not the, the greatest movie in the world. I really had a lot of fun with it. But in particular, that time of my life when I saw it, saw it in an absolute packed cinema, not one free seat. And just a particular type of movie that it was, the way it was making people jump, the way it was making people laugh, it really felt like this really great shared experience. Yes. And you can also drink booze in the uh, picture house, yes, which is uh, quite quite key. Um, any come to mind? Uh one of the worst experiences I've ever had was the Brixton Ritzy where I went to watch the Simpsons movie <laughs> and somebody had literally gone and paid a ticket paid a ticket to be in there so they could... They're either chasing the dragon or huffing glue, I don't remember which, yeah. but they were about four or five seats down from me and yeah. they were very brazenly mm. just doing it in the middle of the film and I just could not concentrate the film <laughs> because that was happening. Um, but yeah, actually, in, in the same regard though, one of my most memorable... Ones was um, seeing Final Destination 2 ah. at the Streatham, I think it was the Streatham Odeon, uh, for the, pretty much the same reason. Mm. It was a it was a it was a busy cinema. It wasn't packed like Dragon Tell, but it was busy. But because of the because everyone knows what they're going to expect with the Final Destination film, I think all the things that would generally drive me fucking nuts in any other film really um, enhanced the experience of watching Final Destination because ultimately all you're watching is a series of these Rube Goldberg contraption type deaths mm. and um, and everyone's just invested in it and just like laughing their heads off or just going, oh my god, you know and something really terrible happens and there's always there's always the people there who are overly invested in the sort of um, being scared, you know like you get you go to a comedy club and there's somebody there who's like, I'm going to a comedy club and I'm going to laugh. Yeah. I don't care how <laughs> shit the jokes are. I'm going to go, ah! 
ah, every time anyone says anything and you're just like, <laughs> please shut the fuck up. You know, you get those people at horror films who are like, I'm coming to a horror film. I'm going to be scared. God damn it. I'm every fucking jump. jump scare, I'm going to scream like someone's broken into my house. <laughs> um, but in, in the case of Final Destination 2, it really worked. And it was it was uh, almost, it was borderline interactive cinema. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Good good example. Um, Final Wasn't Final Destination the first one? Wasn't the trailer uh, thing of people reacting at the cinema? It was one of the first ones that did that, which yeah. was huge, which is now sort of come to be... Well, I, don't, I haven't really seen that tact. No, it was used really well, though, that, wasn't it? That was a cool idea. I haven't cool seen idea. that tactic sort of used recently. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was one of the first ones that did that where they'd filmed in night vision and got yeah. genuine responses. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Um, talking talking of that, I, th- I think because we've just talked about horror, before we finish talking about Annihilation, um, yeah, we, we sort of touched on it with the bear scene. Mm. One of the best bits. We haven't even talked about yeah. it. So um, there it is. It's on right now. It's How happening weird. right now. To my right. And if you started Annihilation at the start of our podcast recording, uh, taking into account editing a little bit backwards and forwards, you will uh, roughly be at the 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 bear scene right now. So um, yeah, this is this is a good example of where it's sort of sparing application of horror is deployed incredibly effectively. Um, where this this bear that has dragged away um, Mrs. Exposition, um, <laughs> she um, she's like, I've I've done all I need to do now. Now I must be dragged away by a bear. Goodbye. Don't forget she, me. She uh, her death cries are absorbed by the bear, and so whether it's the the just the. The, the voice, whether it's like a you know the, the voice being mimicked, or whether it's actually that that remnant of her consciousness that has been refracted into the bear, like on a, from a pure psychological standpoint, that's already quite a worrying concept. But when things go a little bit the thing, mm. uh, and the one lady has a bit of a you know bit of a mental breakdown because she discovers that Natalie Portman and Oscar Isaac are connected, blah blah blah, ties into a chair, she hears the voice. Of um of Miss Exposition, and uh, runs in and then is you know br- brutally killed by the bear because it turns out the bear has has got the voice and then they're all tied to the chair trying not to react. I that's that's a, a bit I didn't really understand. I don't know how they knew that the bear wouldn't really do anything if they sat there quietly like it was the T Rex in Jurassic Park or something. I'm not. Well, it's got a strange uh, skeleton face, hasn't it? So it doesn't yeah. really look like it has eyes. I guess. I um, guess they. I guess she is a bio- biologist, so maybe she was like, "Oh well, it's it's actually quite blind and hunting the night through sound or something." But yeah, that was that was a bit of a leap of faith. But yeah, as it's sort of sneaking around them and just going, you know, just screaming as as the lady. That's it was like a- an anglerfish, though, wasn't it? They're attracting. Attracting people in—that's what I kind of saw it as the predator. I was very much like that. the predator movie of uh, um, you know one, when it's recreating the, the voices of the people. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I think that's 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 a really great scene that ratchets up the tension and does it in a really new, inventive way. Yeah. Um, yeah, a, a bear that sounds like a screaming dead woman—that's that, a new one. It's um, it gets us going as well, doesn't it? Because um. Obviously, to stay in with the uh, alien trope, not, you know, not many, very many people are going to make it. So you've got to sort of start thinking of these ways of getting people and, again, taking it back to that final destination. You don't just want them being, you know, 
eaten by something that pops out of a jungle. We've seen that so many times now. Yeah, so as, like as start... it goes, yeah, as it goes, if you were to like list the ways that the rest of the, the crew are mm. knocked off in this film, you've got dragged off by mutant bear, mm. uh, also killed by mutant bear, but fooled because the bear is screaming like the woman it previously killed. Yeah. Then you've got willingly turned self into plant. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got willingly gives themselves over to amorphous alien being and turns into a being of a, a pure cellular level. Yeah. That's quite an inventive, that's, yeah, that's quite that's, an inventive <laughs> string of death, isn't it? That's a one to four. It's not, not too bad. Oh, and then um, Oscar, I guess. We can count Oscar in there. The, the blowing grenade, himself with yeah, a phosphorus grenade. so and... cool. Like a really cool idea. So, so yeah, well done, Annihilation. Good deaths. Um, right. So, so is this where we evaluate it with our thumbs? We do. We do. We do our Commodus. Yeah. Shall we? Let's do our Commodus wave, wavering thumb. Uh, and it's, uh, it's an up for me. It's a thumbs up. As if um, that was ever in doubt. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Um, sorry to your buddy. Sorry, James. Uh, I liked it. <laughs> um, so moving on. A few little discussion points. Um, take them as you will. Um, Mackenzie Davis. Yes. From Blade Runner 2049. And uh, Halt and Catch Fire. My favourite uh, piece of television uh, is San Junipero. The uh, Black Mirror episode. Absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. Um, she's incredible. She's been added to the new Terminator film. Okay. Um, she is a direct sequel to Terminator 2. Uh, basically inferring that all further sequels aren't, aren't canon. Um, James Cameron's involved. It's happening again. Like oh, what James uh, Cameron said that Genesis was like up, up there with his best work. All victims of abuse. I am coming back again. I'm saying, you know, I'm coming back for more. Um, knowing full well I'm going to get her that kind of ab- absolute uh, cliché. At least um, Mackenzie's there to salve. Mackenzie's there. I've been really salve. big fan of, of the stuff that she's done. Um, but made me think, uh, Terminator aside, obviously, we'll, we'll see on that one, thinking about franchises with new timeline sequels. Yeah. So I've got a couple that I've come up with, uh, the idea of going back, uh, using actors again, because Schwarzenegger's in Terminator. Um, well, there's already one of these I'm very sad that didn't happen. What's that? Uh, Aliens, uh, Neil Blomkamp was going to do a what if yeah. Hudson and Newt, basically like scrubbing Alien mm-hmm. 3 from the record and starting again. Yeah. And then Ridley Scott was like, now I've got a very important story to tell about how the aliens were created. And then <laughs> fuck you, Ridley Scott. Uh, yeah, um, I, I do have to refer back to this point. I do like Don't Prometheus fuck and you. Covenant. Fuck you, no, fuck, fuck you, fuck you. Fuck Ridley Scott. Um, so anyway, forget about that. <laughs> Scrub that. I'm going to edit Fuck that. Damon Lindler. I'm going to edit it, not edit it. Um, <laughs> so, The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Godfather 1 and 2. Going back and doing a new 3. Right. With, um, in the form of 2. So, with Pacino as Michael and, um, and De Niro going back in time again in the retrospective times of their lives. Okay. Sort of scrubbing out 3 and just. Checking back in with um, with them. That's one idea of okay. mine. Um, what with like CG youth, youthized, youthfulized versions of them? No, no. Them as they are now. So 
two is the it, in replacing three. That's what yeah, I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, okay. So like, this is assuming that they, you know, so we're now seeing Vito maybe before we see him in. Oh, but I thought you said they were like flashing back or something. Yeah, but... yeah, something like that. Like okay. like the way that it happened to Godfather Two. That's my first one. Okay. Escape from New York. Going back using Kurt Russell and forgetting about LA. Escape from LA. Ooh, so now seeing that. Um Indiana Jones four. Never happened. No, it does happen in this time now new timeline where they get someone good to ride to hit and don't cast Sheila Berth. Yeah. That's my, <laughs> and that actually works for quite a lot of his films. You can go back and remake most of those films again. Yep. Try Transformers again without sheer. Anyway, I have um, heard stories of uh, Transformers being rebooted. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm into that. Keep Bay and um, and sheer away. Yes. Um, and then my last one, just stupid thing, uh, the Matrix. I mean, if you went back and had a go at following up the first Matrix, so the... call it like Control Alt Delete. The and writer so like, Zach Penn is apparently trying to reboot the Matrix, and I can't. I can't remember. I'm sure I read somewhere that he didn't want to start it again, mm. but he did want to sort of bring it back. But yeah, I would. For me, I, I just think the Matrix in isolation is sort of perfect as it is. Yeah, and then the other two sequels just don't need to exist. No, they don't. And the power of that first one was at the end of it. You just sort of write your own story. I don't need to see where they actually live in the human world. I don't need to know about no. their terrible rave nights or <laughs> rave nights. Oh, I, I, I don't need to know about all these shitty allusions to fucking Greek mythology. I don't need to hear the art. None of that. Like the first one was good. And then the, the now Wachowski sisters. Um, yeah. just really shat on it. So yeah, by all means, I don't know. I, 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 I like the, Less that they sort of go back, more that the two films that followed was just scrubbed from the record and the first yeah. film just forever existed in isolation and was considered as such. Well, no, my point is is that these new films in my hypothetical mm-hmm. reality are good ones. That is going to be a good... Well, my argument is they don't need new films that are good. I just think The Matrix would just stay as it is, as the oh, one well, idea. That's just common sense talking. Sorry. Don't talk to me about common sense. Sorry. Podcasting. Um, going to TV for a second. Okay. Uh, a few trailers uh, came out. I don't know whether you uh, whether you've caught up with these. Uh, New Roseanne. I've heard about New Roseanne. Yeah, that um, isn't dead. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Because that horrible sort of thing they stuck at the end when she was actually she'd been making up the last few series. Of yeah. It yeah. And he, yeah. Um. I feel funny about it in the in light of Roseanne Barr kind of coming out as a full right-wing Republican. I, I did used to like Roseanne back in the day. I don't know if it's going to have retained that sort of working-class charm that made it so unique back in the day. Well, especially if it weaves any of that stuff in. Like, remember how everyone stopped liking um, My Name Is Earl when they found out about the Scientology thing. Yeah, well, like, and that's it. it. I, can't, I can't get on board with their vision of a blue-collar family mm. knowing that she supports the ideals of a party that, um, like the Tories over here, purport to be in support of 
you know, the, the, the common man, but mm. are in fact doing everything in their power to suppress them. So it sort of makes it feel disingenuous. And uh, well, there are loads of right wing, working class families. In no, there, there are. I just don't imagine that, that show is going to reflect the the, the the sort of inherent bigotry and racism that pervades in those households. Mm. People are like, oh, ain't we a good, <laughs> you know, white white family? So I don't know. I I never really got that impression from Roseanne the series that that no, was her way of thinking. Tonally, it obviously has a lot to do. But I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it. Uh, and uh, second after that, the um, seen the Cobra Kai. Yes, um, trailer. What did you yeah. think? I, I quite like. That. I'm into it. I'm into it. I, I, into I really it. dig it. I like the idea that that Johnny's trying to turn Cobra Kai into, into a legitimate Karate Institute, and mm. actually, it's, it's actually Danny. He's sort of dead set against it yeah. because of the because of the legacy of it. So, um, yeah, there's quite a nice little callback at the end as well when um, the guys clean the windows. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. Because I oh, should I be cleaning these in a specific way, and he's like, I don't give a shit. Yeah, you know, it's it's. it's it it actually seems quite a cool yeah I mean quite a cool I'm idea. Into it. I'm, like uh, yeah it seems to be treated respectfully yeah. I think I think the concept of it is is sound um I'm I'm obviously concerned that it's a YouTube Red series but every everything's got to start somewhere yeah next the new Quentin Tarantino film has a title you've already expressed your uh. Malaise. This one's a, a fact-based one, isn't it? But uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the name of the movie. Yes. And it is described, it is a story that takes place in Los Angeles in 1969 at the height of hippie Hollywood. The two lead characters are Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, former star of a Western TV series, and his longtime stunt double Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie has also joined the cast as well. Yes, so I believe this is... I don't know if it is directly referencing, but it is tied around Manson family. Sharon well, Tate. Apparently, the connection, only connection that he's uh, let on so far is that Rick Dalton, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, lives next to uh, Sharon Tate. Right. That's the, that's the connection so far. Um, yeah, I'm, again, I'm... I'm up for it. I would really, really like if this one could be a nice tight, yes, you know, two movie, hours, you know, hour and a half to two, two hours, hours max, movie. Really like to. We shall uh, see. Um, that would be great. Um, finally, a little bit of a sad story in 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 my uh, to my mind is Joss Whedon leaving the Batgirl movie. Yeah, that was a few weeks ago. Yeah, said, uh, yeah, sorry, I just, uh, you know, just uh, keeping everyone up to date on stuff that <laughs> happened ages ago. But him saying that uh, Batgirl is such an exciting project and Warner's DC such collaborative and supportive partners that it took me months to realise I didn't have a story. Um, I'm grateful to everyone who's so welcoming when I arrived and so understanding when I, uh, is there a sexier word for failed? Which I thought was quite a nice thing, but no, I feel Joss was, Whedon really needs to get back on the horse. And you it know. was tied to the fact that he's very much been right on, you know, feminist, and apparently he's been up to no good. Has, has he been a naughty boy? I think he's been a naughty boy, yeah. uh, and I think the two events have uh, conspired to uh, <sighs> drive him away from the film. Can't really be in charge of the Batgirl movie, I guess. Um, well, 
I, 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 you know, I, I don't know. I think he could have done a good job with that, but I also believe that Warner and DC are very aware of the current political climate in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're very aware of the success of Wonder Woman. Yeah. Uh, you know, what Patty, Patty Jenkins did with that. So I think, yeah, they thought, look, we are very much in the midst of a very welcome sea change mm. in terms of attitudes towards cleaning house, women, diversity, and you know anyone who's got red on them at the moment uh, is uh, probably not welcome. Oh man, red on his ledger. Got red on his ledger. Oh, wow. Um, great. Um, that's the end of my news section. News um, section. Uh, news section over. Big sting. Or like a um, Tim Westwood. Yeah. It's a big explosion. Hip-hop explosion. Um, moving on to our final uh, section of the podcast. We like to recommend, to put forth our um, recommendation outside of this. Um, this is a non-spoiler one, so uh, don't feel that you uh, have, to, um, have to turn away. Uh, Dan, do you have yours this time? Ghostbusters, that's one of the films I'd go back and sort of have a do-over on. Thanks for asking. <laughs> well, you were supposed to be joking. <laughs> <laughs> A-hole. <laughs> um, um, what am I going to talk about That's a time? great one, by the way. Thank I you. I think that would be a really good one. What, what's the one I want to do over on? Right, okay. There's a show I'm watching at the moment. Um, there's a, as I say, I've got this sort of archive of shows I want to recommend, but there's one I'm watching right now, which I I think is great, on Netflix, which is called Ugly Delicious. Mm, yes, I have seen it. Have you? I really enjoy this show. It's it's a film that a film. <laughs> it's a series that tackles popular foodstuffs. And I guess those that are generally sort of frowned upon by the um, the hood cuisine community, yeah. but are eaten by a hell of a lot of people. So things like pizzas, barbecue, tacos, and it's uh, it's 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 not, it's not necessarily presented. And that's one of the things I like about this show is that it's very conversation led. It's driven by interactions between. Uh, I believe it's a, a chef, a, sort of a Korean American chef, and and a food critic are the two central uh, people in it, and then they bring in friends of theirs from all walks, really. Whether that's other chefs, other critics, other actors. Um, so, for example, in the first episode, there's a guy who runs a pizzeria in New York uh, that they chat to. <clears throat> And the conversation with the guy from this pizzeria about what constitutes a real pizza, what are the elements that make a real pizza, then spark this whole discussion that basically covers the globe of of different chefs and different people's interpretation of what a pizza can be and what it means. Mm. Uh, what it means, you know, obviously you've got the the home of pizza like Naples, so who have very hard rules about what constitutes a true Neapolitan pizza, but then you hear the sort of, you hear the political reasons why they have these rules about the type of cheese that's being used. And that leads to an entire conversation about, 
well, what's true authenticity? Is it authentic if someone in Japan makes a pizza using Italian ingredients? Or is it more authentic if that person uses local ingredients to create yeah. their version of pizza? You know, is authenticity actually uh, a ball and chain that's actually restricting people mm. from getting the most out of these fundamental food concepts? Why should pizza, which is sort of such a flexible dish, be constrained? by these rules just set by people who are actually ultimately just trying to improve the the mozzarella yeah, trade yeah. Uh, in, in Naples. And that's and that's what I like about it. It's it starts off as a conversation about a food stuff. It shows you places that you would travel the ends of the earth to go and eat at. You know, it's beautifully shot. The food looks absolutely incredible. That mm. you know, I want to go to Copenhagen now because <laughs> my God, the amount of stuff they've got going on there right now is incredible. But then it starts bringing all these sort of socio-cultural, political aspects into the food process and what that means for different people and different communities. And it, just, it, I just, I, I think the execution of it is fantastic. It doesn't abide by, by, it doesn't abide by any hard or fast rules in terms of the way that it's, it's presented. Each episode feels like its own entity that feels true to the food stuff they're talking about. I like its sort of freewheeling nature. I like that sometimes it has a mixed media approach. Yeah. I like that in many ways it's it's structured but feels structureless. Um, yeah, I, I think if you've had your fill, pun intended, of food shows, I think Ugly Delicious will prove that there are other ways to uh, create programs about food. Oh, cool. Um, mine uh, this time is the Oscar-winning Icarus. Mm. Um, I think that this is definitely worth everyone's time it's not a subject i would really seek out or know much about is it doping yeah it's um it's basically based around this chap who is a amateur cyclist does these uh um amateur um tour de france style races and realizes that there's just a level that he is just not able to get to naturally he you know, it's obviously doing it part time, but he decided it would be a good idea to try and replicate Lance Armstrong's uh, doping program. Right. He basically finds a way of using the same drugs he used. Obviously, this is amateur as well, even though actually the race he enters does claim that it does test people, but it never does. Um, and gets in contact with the guy who says he'll help him and then says, oh, my... Um, my reputation is online. I can't help you. I do know someone that will help you though, and gives him this Skype of this guy in Russia who basically he starts talking to and is like, yeah, I'll help you. Oh, you want to do the Lance Armstrong thing? Okay, great. And basically leads you down this thing. And he ends up, this guy was actually one of the heads of the lead sort of testing drug testing facilities for the Olympics <laughs> and was just, and he tells, tells the, the journalist this but as it goes on um the revelations start coming out about russia and them getting banned from the olympics do you remember being yeah, banned yeah. for rio and retrospectively taking medals off people in past olympics and he gets embroiled in it i won't spoil it um that's literally happens in like the first part of right. it and where it goes from there it's so well put together it's totally an example of a documentarian being in the right place at the right time I'm not sure 
how this guy could ever follow it up with another thing. He won the Oscar for it and wonder what his next movie could be because this was totally fortuitous. Lightning, lightning would have to strike twice. Got, oh my yeah. God. Like, so when you watch it, you'll realise it's so incredible. Like the, all the confluence of these different things that have happened, um, the, the cadence of which they're talking, the, you know, the, the way the messages get shorter as this guy gets into more and more trouble and then he gets involved with him. Anyway, really, really great, really cool. worth a watch. Um, and I think you'll come away with it thinking that you've spent a good, good amount of time watching it. Uh, it's funny, isn't it, actually, with the with, with Netflix, as, as, as much as their sort of traditional film output has been much maligned, a lot of its documentary output has actually been fairly uh, remarkable, actually. Absolutely, and I think maybe... Which reminds me of the one I'll talk about next week. <laughs> um, I think uh, maybe I would like to think about... Um, Maybe featuring a documentary as one of our choices or something later on. Definitely, definitely. Probably would have been a good one to choose, but never mind. Um, speaking of which, moving on, wrapping up. Um, yes. What we're going to do for our our next choice. And I'm going to surprise you on this one. Um, we've talked a, um, a little bit about what we would do in the future. And I thought, if we're getting a concept, a way of choosing things, why not make it more complicated? So Brilliant. we're going to do two tiers of choices this week. Christ. You can either choose love or not love. That's going to be the first choice. <laughs> love or not love. Uh, love. In, famously, the opposite of love is not love. Well, no, because you'll you, you realise why. I, know, I think yeah, like yeah. Um, uh, love um, is going to... And then you go into that next choice, which will be a choice of two. So love is the Florida Project. Okay. Or the big sick, another Oscar. What's the winner. Florida Project available? On? Uh, uh, Florida Project is available on uh, Amazon Prime. I think both Amazon Prime and the oh, big great, sick. Great, so I really want to see that. Not to sway anyone's opinion, but I've seen the big sick. So if you would pick the Florida Project, that would be great. Um, and not love is your choice of uh, Veronica or the Wailing. Why are you putting four films in one choice? Just to make it more complicated. <laughs> rather than just having those two horror films in the next one. It'll be more complicated. Uh, fine. <laughs> well, everybody wait towards choosing Not Love and we'll do... Uh, oh, but I, would, I would happily watch any of those films. I'd yeah. watch The Big Sick again, to yeah, be honest. absolutely. But, um, and I think that... Also, I would like to consider maybe going back and um, and maybe including films that we've seen before because a rewatch can be really useful. Yes, it can. And I would like to include The Handmaiden in one of our choices. Uh, oh, yeah, I'd really yeah. like to watch that. Yeah, anyway, uh, so yeah, overcomplicating things. That <laughs> love, is my... Love or not. Love or not love. Um, so hang on. Know. So you better... Exp- well, how are people going to first... So, so what? Do we have to do a vote to decide whether love or not love wins first? Yeah. And then have a second vote second of vote. the films within that? Yeah. Okay. Just because I like making things complicated. So the, the two topics really are love or ghosts and shit. Yeah. Not love. Not love. Which is why I didn't choose hate, because not necessarily... Not necessarily hate. Might be. And I'm Might not, be both be about vengeful, hateful spirits. I'm a bit of a hippie and I'm not actually a big fan of the word or the um, thing itself. So I we, hate that you feel that way. <laughs> I not love that you feel that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> Much as I'm 
not love in with this idea. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you very much if you have made it uh, this far. Um, I really hope you have. Uh, that was really fun um, for me. Um, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Alex. Um, we will see you all again for our over-convoluted uh, way of choosing the next film. Get ready. Uh, next week, it's a 16-round round-robin <laughs> tournament to choose the film. You have to roll a dice and take that number. and uh, Everyone, get to... your D20s out. <laughs> and go to a coordinate on a map. Um, uh, We're going geocaching for um, next week's film. So thank you very much, everyone. Um, this has been the uh, episode four of Required Reading, a... Um, film podcast. Bye-bye. See you later.